Well, if you were here last weekend, you know that as a part of our year-long study of the New Testament book of Acts, Pastor Marv considered chapter 9. It contains the story of Saul's dramatic conversion to faith in Christ. And this weekend, I want to consider that same passage and that same event, but from a totally different angle. So I invite you to listen once again as I read Luke's account of the most important day in Saul's life. It's found in Acts 9, verses 3 through 6. As Saul was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. Today I want to speak to you on a very important topic. I want to speak to you on the pain of holiness. The pain of holiness. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, in these coming moments, by your Spirit, enable me to teach your word faithfully and accurately. By your Holy Spirit, enable each one of us to understand it and apply it faithfully. And as always, we pray these things for the honor of Christ and in his great name, amen and amen. And as we study God's Word together this morning, may the Lord be with you. Recently, the wife of an immensely popular pastor created quite a stir, quite a buzz, when she declared that devotion to God really isn't about God, it's about us, and that God's chief concern is our unending, uninterrupted happiness that nothing gives God greater joy than our happiness. Now, her confident proclamation didn't surprise me, and here's why. When you join the gospel to idols, the result will invariably resemble the idols more than it will resemble the gospel. And she and her famous husband long ago joined the gospel of Christ to America's favorite idols, in what amounts to an unholy union. They have joined the gospel to the idols of materialism, power, success, narcissism, entitlement, self-help, therapeutic redemption, self-promotion, and the cult of human celebrity. So her announcement was inevitable. Now, I'm sure that announcement was greeted with enthusiasm by the undiscerning. I'm sure those who are living a comfortable, cushy life and appear to have everything going their direction would like to believe God exists to make sure that their comfort is never interrupted. And then there are those who believe that happiness is the ultimate goal of life and an entitlement. And I'm sure they would have welcomed her proclamation. And then, sadly, there are a lot of people in this world who've known very little happiness. And they would just love to believe 
that if they put their trust in God, their economy, their health, and everything else would immediately fall into line. But I doubt her confident promise garnered hearty amens and hallelujahs when it was received by Egyptian believers, wondering if their next worship service is going to be interrupted by a bomb, or the families of African Christians who have been slaughtered by Boko Haram, or the children of believers that have been slain in Iraq and Syria, or the believers who had their throats slit by ISIS, or the children in Thailand who are sold into sexual slavery by starving parents. I doubt her confident assertion that God wants you to have a bigger house and more money and a nicer car because that's a part of happiness. I doubt if that resonated with people held in the vice-like grips of suffocating poverty, disabling, disabling excuse me, disease, political tyranny, social injustice, domestic heartache, or destructive addictions. After all, if uninterrupted happiness is God's will, then the unavoidable conclusion is that the ranks of the suffering are made up of the clueless, the uninformed, people imprisoned by their own negativity, or people who are at odds with God. So while I suspect that the preacher's wife was hoping to draw people to God, I fear that she has set people up for disillusionment with God. And here's why I say that. Happiness is a sense of well-being that is dependent upon pleasant or positive circumstances. And as we all know, circumstances are very, very fickle. Circumstances can change in a nanosecond with the sound of a gun, the screeching of automobile tires, a phone call from your doctor, the death of a loved one, downsizing at work, a harsh word, a new neighbor, or a text message on an unguarded cell phone. So despite the smiling reassurance of the preacher's wife, the reality is contrary to what she said. The reality is happiness is fleeting and fragile precisely because it is circumstantial. It requires the full cooperation of a world that is rarely cooperative. And that's why God desires something better for us, something that is more sturdy, something that is more enduring, something that can stand the tests and the weight of life something that the Bible calls holiness. Holiness is a secure condition of spiritual completion. And it's holiness that God desires for us. God didn't say in Scripture, I am happy, so you should be happy like me. God said, I am holy, so you should be holy. God didn't say, pursue happiness without which you'll never see God. He said, pursue holiness without which you'll never see God. He didn't say, this is my will, your happiness. He said, this is my will, your holiness. Holiness 
is so much greater than fragile happiness. Holiness is secure because it doesn't rely on the fickle circumstances beyond our control. It relies on a faithful God who is in control. Holiness can exist right alongside of heartache and tragedy. And contrary to what I thought before I stepped into the kingdom, holiness isn't the end of happiness, nor is it the enemy of happiness. Holiness actually ensures ultimate enduring happiness because happiness hinges on circumstances. And holiness is the only circumstance that is secure and enduring. All other circumstances are subject to change. So I like what C.S. Lewis said in this regard. He said, when you pursue holiness, you get happiness thrown in at no extra charge. <laughs> but I want you to notice, I said that holiness is a secure condition of spiritual completion. I didn't say spiritual perfection. And here's why. In matters of faith, you can be complete without being perfected. You can be complete without being perfected. Now, I know that sounds rather odd, so I'm going to do my very best to explain it by way of an illustration. Karen and I recently purchased a new home computer. I caved in to the terrorist threats from Google <laughs> because they kept telling me they were not going to update their site until I updated my antiquated programming. So I finally caved in, and off to Sam's Club we went. And an hour or so later, we left Sam's Club with a brand new computer destined for obsolescence in three years and a three-month supply of toilet paper. Because that's what you always get at Sam's Club, right? Because you never know when we might get a quarter inch of snow. And you'll need three months' worth of toilet paper. What is it about a little bit of snow that makes us need toilet paper? I've never figured that out. Or milk. I don't even drink milk. Now, <laughs> the computer that I brought home was complete. It contains all the programs I will ever need and many I'll never need. But the reality is I haven't perfected the use of those programs and I suspect I never will. My computer is complete, but my understanding and use of it isn't perfected. To take full advantage of all its capacities, I would need additional understanding. So in similar fashion, at conversion, God makes us instantly holy. He provides everything we need to be fully human. You receive all of God's blessings the second you step into God's kingdom. He can't give you any more because all of his blessings are in Christ and Christ is in you. And you can't get a part of Christ. You can't get his right leg and his right arm and not the rest of them. You either have Jesus or you don't. And if you have Jesus, you have every spiritual blessing. The testimony of Scripture is every believer has been given everything they need for godliness. Okay. 
But as the rest of the New Testament reminds us, while our holiness is complete from God's side, it needs to be perfected from our side. And that requires understanding. Understanding is necessary for the perfection of what I already possess. I already possess it, but to perfect it, I need understanding. And understanding often requires something that we never, never, never pray for and rarely appreciate. Understanding often comes on the heels of pain and disappointment. Now, as if to underscore that fact, the Old Testament book of Proverbs makes a statement. It tells us that the wounds of a friend are faithful. The wounds of a friend are faithful. Have you noticed that's not a particularly popular verse? I've never seen it on a refrigerator magnet. <laughs> I, I don't find it on Jesus junk and holy hardware. I don't find it on bad landscapes sold at the Christian bookstore. And I, and I don't find it on Christian t-shirts. And if they're Christian t-shirts, why do they shrink like unbelieving t-shirts? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but it's not a particularly popular verse. And we know why. We want our friends to affirm us. We don't want our friends to wound us. How often have you gone to your friends and say, you know, you haven't wounded me in a while. <laughs> Are you angry with me? Are we falling out? Because it used to be I could count on you to wound me occasionally, but now all you do is compliment me. What's wrong? And the idea of God wounding us, well, that's a non-starter. God wounding me? But here's the problem. In John 15, 15, God said to his disciples, I don't call you servants anymore. I call you my friends. We sing a worship chorus that God calls us his friends. And God wounds his friends as an expression of his friendship. And he not only does it prior to our conversion, but he often wounds us in order to bring us to conversion, to make us one of his friends. When chapter 9 opened, Saul was hardly God's friend. When the chapter closed, he was. Even though when chapter 9 opens, it didn't appear like Saul was getting close to the kingdom. But the way that God pursued Saul has a lot to say to both the unbelieving and the believing. To the unbelieving, it has something to say about how you can come into the possession of happiness and holiness. And to the believing, it has something to say about how we can perfect the holiness we already possess. I want to remind you that while it explodes suddenly on the pages of Scripture, Saul's conversion was hardly sudden. It was the culmination of a long season of wounding by God. And that season demonstrates that God's liberating work often begins with persistent pain. 
Paul had attempted to prove his worth to God, to prove his righteousness by man-made, legalistic, performance-oriented religion. And it had left him frustrated and miserable and angry. In his mind, he'd done all the right things, but he hadn't gotten the right results, and that hurt. And as I'm sure you know, pain frequently announces its presence through anger. Anger is the calling card of pain. When you see anger, look for pain. And anger needs a target, somebody or something it can vent on. And Paul's anger, Saul's anger, found a convenient and easy target in the followers of Jesus. Their teaching, their message infuriated him. Because he was a smart dude and he knew if they were right, he was totally, totally wrong. And I want you to be reminded that the voices that God uses to invite us to holiness often upset us. The voices God uses to invite us to holiness often upset us. That's why if you're in a church where the preaching and the teaching never disturbs you, never challenges you, never convicts you, you're in a church that is not preaching the gospel of Christ. Because the gospel of Christ will comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. It will affirm God's grace and God's love for you, but it will also point out in blunt fashion your pride, your unbelief, your arrogance, your need to be right, your selfishness, and the cancer of sin that is still at work within you. You can draw a crowd by saying only things that are positive and affirming. But I'm afraid you're not only drawing them, you're leading them to a Christless eternity. The voices God uses to invite us to holiness often upset us. I want to say one more thing before I move on from that point. You don't need me to tell you that we are living in a politically venomous culture. It's ugly out there, and it's getting uglier by the minute. Vicious accusations and equally vicious rebuttals being hurled back and forth and back and forth. And I'd like to suggest something that will sound rather odd. I'd like to suggest if you are committed to perfecting your holiness, you should listen for the voice of God in the voices of those whose opinion you utterly detest. You should listen for God in the voices of people with whom you agree about nothing. And why do I say that? Because no one is wrong about everything all the time. Even fools occasionally speak the truth. Even a broken clock is exactly right twice a day. 
And if God can speak through a jackass, and he did, read your Bible, God can speak through anybody. And if, when you're reading the diatribes of those who oppose you, all you think about is how you can rebut them, you may miss the occasion to hear a rebuttal aimed at you from God himself. And you may miss a chance to perfect your holiness. Because conservatives are right about some things and liberals are right about some things and both of them are wrong about a whole host of things. So don't automatically close your ears just because you don't like the voice. Saul learned that pain can be God's way of reminding us that holiness isn't being right about everything, it's being right with God. And if you need to be right about everything, you've got to struggle to be right with God. As I'm sure you've noticed, whenever we doubt our actions, we just intensify them. <laughs> and God must just shake his head. You see, Paul began to doubt what he was doing, so he ratcheted up what he was doing. He had persecuted believers in Jerusalem, leading to Stephen's death, but Stephen's death unnerved him. He couldn't handle the way Stephen died, so he ratcheted up his efforts. He set after the believers who fled Jerusalem and fled to Damascus, but that required a journey of 140 miles on foot. That took seven days. Travel in that day was difficult. 140 miles, seven days, and it only increased his pain. And I say that because his only companions were the court police who were commanded, commanded to accompany him. And I'm sure those guys were not happy about drawing that assignment. 140-mile journey just because of this religious fanatic, and there are no good donut shops on the way to Damascus. To make matters worse, because he was a rigid Pharisee, Saul wouldn't have spoken to his men who were escorting him. Not a word. They were beneath him in his sight. How'd you like to spend seven days on the road with somebody that doesn't speak to you because they think they're better than you? So Saul spent seven days alone with awkward silence, uncomfortable relationships, aching feet, and troubling thoughts because God was closing in on him. During the journey, he walked through Galilee. That had to be tough because Galilee is where Jesus started. It was the wrong place as far as Saul was concerned. The wrong people as far as he was concerned. But the people there loved Jesus. When you're walking through the land where the people love your enemy, that's a painful experience. And near Damascus, as he got near to his destination, the road climbed Mount Hermon. Now, Mount Hermon was notorious for violent, sudden electrical storms and lightning. And so it was likely during a far too close lightning strike that Saul was driven to the ground and temporarily blinded. 
And what happened next brought his pain to the breaking point. He heard a voice. As a devout Pharisee, a voice from heaven only meant one thing. God was speaking to him. And he probably assumed, God is going to commend me and encourage me. And then came the two words that rocked his world. I'm Jesus. You talk about pain? How much does it hurt to discover you are the exact opposite of everything you thought you were? That all that time, you hadn't been God's friend and servant. You had been God's enemy. You didn't have it right. You couldn't be more wrong. And then to add on, to pile on, he was reduced to being led helpless into the city by the men he wouldn't speak to, blind and in need of instruction from a Jesus follower who would tell him what his next steps needed to be. Saul was learning that contrary to the pronouncements of the preacher's wife, God doesn't use empty promises to encourage counterfeit happiness. God uses pain to birth holiness. And I want you to notice what I said. God uses pain. He doesn't cause it. We're the ones ultimately responsible for the pain. Now, why do I say that? Because when God wounds us, it is nothing more than the foremost spiritual surgeon in the universe making incisions in our soul so that he can remove the cancer of sin before it destroys our life. And when a surgeon cuts to remove cancer, the ultimate responsibility for the pain is not the surgeon, but the cancer. No cancer, no incision. No incision, no pain. And why do we have the cancer of sin? Because we've tolerated it, because we've nurtured it, because we've grown it, because we've protected it, because we've defended it. If we hadn't been such willing hosts to the cancer of sin, we wouldn't need surgery. See, in the Old Testament, God said, the day is coming when I'll circumcise your heart. That's a painful analogy. Somebody cutting something away from your heart. But you see, God's not the one ultimately responsible for the pain. We are. It's because of our sin and because of his loving intervention. So in closing, let me suggest a couple takeaways. First, for those who haven't yet come to Jesus, and then for those who have. If you haven't yet come to Jesus, Scripture is clear. For a whole host of reasons, you cannot and will not come to Jesus on your own. People do not seek out God any more than a criminal seeks out the police. Sin never seeks out God. Scripture's clear. In order to come to God, the Holy Spirit has to draw you. He has to draw you. And one of the ways he draws us is through the pain that makes us aware 
that our current path is leading nowhere fast, that it's never going to deliver what it is we really hunger for, that sin is destroying us, and that God is offering us a better option. So if everything in your life seems to be falling apart, don't assume God is angry with you and that he's deserted you. It might just be indicative that he is passionately, like Saul, pursuing you because he wants you to have a Damascus Road experience wherein he will set you free. In the days leading up to my conversion, I was absolutely miserable. And then in a second, I discovered the joy of the Lord. Now, if you've already put your faith in Jesus, and you need to perfect your holiness, remember, to do that, you need to recognize your sin, confess your sin, and abandon your sin in favor of something more satisfying. And you'll never do that until you feel the pain of your sin. So some pain in life is unavoidable. It's the result of living in a broken world. But other pain is indicative of God at work pointing out your problem. And when he's doing that, you can pray till the cows come home. You can pray in Jesus' name. <laughs> and you can say it several times. <laughs> and he's still not going to remove the pain. Because if he were to remove the pain, he'd re be removing your only hope and your opportunity for holiness. And he loves you too much to do that. Loves you like a parent saying to a child, I know you don't like what I'm requiring of you. I know you're mad at me right now. But I'm not yielding. I love you too much to yield. So how should we close? Let me close with this. When God's involved, there are times when pain is an incredible gift. It's an open door to something better. So to come full circle, that pronouncement by the preacher's wife, my problem with it isn't that it promises too much. My problem is it promises too little and it aims too low. To quote C.S. Lewis, God offers us an all expenses paid weak at the shore and we want to play in a mud puddle in the alley. The promise that God wants you to have an expensive home and a Mercedes in the garage and perfect health all the time promises too little because everything I just described can be gone in a second. It's fragile incredibly fragile. And even if you die with it, there are no U-Hauls behind hearses. <laughs> Her promise settles for a counterfeit happiness that cannot stand the weight of life, that cannot stand the weight of the gospel, that will not preach in the slums of Calcutta, that will not preach when believers are being beheaded by ISIS. You see, the gospel of Jesus will preach anywhere. And the ridiculous gospel of more money, better car, 
perfect health. That's what Jesus wants. That won't preach in the majority of places in this world. And if it won't preach there and make any sense, it is not the gospel of God. It is the ramblings of false teachers who will tickle people's ears so that they can enjoy riches while they lead you into a Christless eternity. And if you don't know the difference, shame on you. And if you support them in the judgment, you will be accountable for every soul they misled. But the word of God will bear the weight of life. Jesus didn't die to remove every pain of life. If he's got to make you what you want to be and what he wants you to be, there has to be some pain. But it's the pain that perfects rather than the pain that destroys. And may God give us the maturity and the discernment to recognize his good hand. Let's pray together. Father, often our concepts of you are perverted by the cultural setting in which we live. It takes real intentionality to avoid corrupting your message with culture. And nowhere is that more the case than in this matter of pain. Lord, when it comes to pain, help us to get out of our spiritual diapers. Help us to be mature in our understanding. And help us to know Jesus didn't die to make us happy consumers. Jesus died so that our holiness might be perfected and we might have joy for eternity. And help us to know the difference in his great name. Amen.